Hey Z. Yeah. If a kitchen's an orchestra, what would your favourite sound be? In orchestral terms, I'm thinking like <laughs> woodwinds, which makes me think of the little Bialetti coffee machine. Nice. And now I'm imagining like a whole section of little Bialetti coffee machines. <laughs> little baby ones. Yeah, all different sizes and shapes. It's like a little section up the back of the orchestra. Love that. How about you? Well, I've always loved the drama of percussion. So maybe wooden spoon on a cast iron pan. Mm. But I also really love like lower end warm cellos and I feel like the sound of that might be like grating a hard cheese. (laughs) Well our guest this week knows all about this and could build an entire orchestra from kitchen sounds alone. It's composer Peter Corrigan and we had him on our couch on what always was and always will be Wurundjeri land. We talk about those moments that change your life as an artist and we also talked about what it was like growing up in rural Victoria with eight siblings. In this episode, there are some rude words, but also some very big-hearted ideas and lots of laughs. So let's find out what Pete Corrigan eats. What is the best thing that you've eaten lately? Okay, so the best thing that I've had recently was was our friend Fabian made homemade pizzas mm. like a few nights ago, and it was mind-blowingly good. It was so good. And it's like when people say that they're going to make homemade pizzas, I have in my head, it's like, oh, yeah, they've got like a frozen base or something and we all assemble it. Or bit of pita bread. Bit of pita bread. That's what <laughs> Nick and I do. But he made this dough from scratch and they just kept coming out. We were just eating mm. and drinking and talking and having a wonderful time. And then the food just kept coming and it was just each pizza was just delicious and right. the toppings were amazing. It was yeah. so good. And what I loved, they were all different. Yeah. yeah. Every pizza was different. Mm-hmm. Then I got a sore tummy. Oh, no. Because <laughs> I just kept eating. And because well, yeah, I was like, true. this is the last pizza. Surely this is the last yeah. pizza. And then, come out. Yeah. and then he'd get up. I'm like, no, no, no. I just watched him go to the kitchen. I'm like, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you never want to ask for more food when you're at someone's house. Yeah. Especially if you don't know if there's more coming. That's a bit of a faux pas, isn't it? It's yeah. just being like, uh, is there more food coming? <laughs> Excuse me. I'm. <laughs> That's actually a really good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you ever asked for more food at someone's house? I. I'm barely able to accept food at people's houses still. But I think the older I get, the more I realise that it's not impolite to accept food Mm. when people offer it to you. Yes. In fact, it makes them happy. Yeah. I think that's a a general sort of cultural thing of being taught not to accept anything that's given to you Mm. because it's directly at odds with so many other cultures that I've become aware of in my Mm. adult life where it's it actually is rude to refuse something that someone's offered to you if it's a gift or if it's like food or if it's anything like that yeah and I'm trying in my adult life to be more accepting of those things and to understand that people offer stuff with the purpose of you know fulfilling that and wanting to do it and you refusing to do it is actually can be disappointing or offensive Mm -hmm. Uh someone told me once that you have to say no once Mm. And then accept the second time. Well, I do like the idea that, that like, little if bit of someone is, of- if they're offering because they feel like they have to, but they don't actually want to, <laughs> you're giving them an opportunity to then like, mm. um, no thanks, okay, and then move on. But then if they do insist, then mm-hmm. they actually do want to, you know, or maybe it's arbitrary. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just like blink once for yes and blink twice for no. Right? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to navigate this stuff. I'm, I'm glad we talked about this. Yeah. I'm yeah. interested in this in relation to you and coming from a huge family. How many siblings? So I have eight siblings. Okay. That is very interesting. I have I have an interesting relationship with food because of that. And mm. something that's 
been the source of mostly just like comedy in my relationship <laughs> with my partner for the last 10 years. But, you know, anyone who has even one or two siblings knows that there's just like a an inherent competitiveness that comes and also an inherent kind of feeling of scarcity mm. um, when it comes to, you know, treats or like, you know, desserts or things like that. But it was magnified like, you know, ninefold with our family. <laughs> Let's say, if, you know, if there was like a, a treat or, or something, a, a box of chocolates that's for everyone in inverted commas, you had to get there and get what you needed first. And it's like a me and mine kind of situation. A real urgency and, around getting Yeah, it. urgency, absolutely. Mm. Urgency around the food that you ate and also a sense of like a really strong sense of justice around portion sizes. <laughs> so this was a big one and like. We had this thing where um, in school holidays we would have Cocoa Pops in the house, but it was only ever for special occasions like mm. like school holidays like Christmas or, you know, we've gone away somewhere and we'd get a big box of Cocoa Pops and the whole thing was that we were allowed one cup of Cocoa Pops <laughs> in our bowl and it was like watching each other <gasps> like hawks measure out our little cups of Cocoa Pops oh and God. filling our bowls. And like the second we thought that someone had heaped their cup, all hell broke loose. <laughs> it was insanity. And did you have to do things in like an age hierarchical order or was it a Not bit really. More that makes it sound balanced. very like Von Trapp kind of like, you know, <laughs> blow the whistle and the kids all like step forward one at a time. But it was mm-hmm. a lot more chaotic than that, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so now you work as a composer. You're also a musician. Can you tell us about what it is you do and how you got here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a, I'm a composer for media. I guess is the description I I give people, which means that I write music for any kind of media that I can. Composer is something that I think I've always seen myself as wanting to become when I was younger um, and in my adult life, sort of this identity that I was kind of trying to cultivate and really like put out into the world as as who I was and who I wanted to be was a composer mm. and specifically a composer for film. That was sort of my thing when I was growing up was like wanting to be a film composer mm-hmm. Because I was so inspired by films growing up. But I really like saying media composer now because it, it's much more expansive and much more inclusive of, of different sort of formats and different um, mediums of art, particularly, you know, like television, video games and live performances, theatre, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's a very exciting, I guess, like way to view your practice and your craft is as something that can evolve over time or something that you may have had one sense one idea of what it was going to be like when you first started out mm-hmm. but mm. the journey that you're taken on is like you know one of lots of twists and turns mm-hmm. well if we go back to like the earliest music memories what's your favorite score oh my favorite like film score what is your favorite film score oh this is great someone asked me this the other night and i answered straight away and it's okay. harry potter and the philosopher's stone oh. it's the score for that for that film by john mm-hmm. williams and it yep. is a phenomenal piece of work and anyone who I guess, like, is passingly familiar with film, like, knows that, like, theme and knows sort of, like, yeah. a lot of it. Th- there's just something fabulous about that particular score, which is, like, it was, it's just so rich and there's, like, a million themes for a million characters and it's very it's very extra, I, mm-hmm. I would say. It's very, <laughs> yeah. like, it's the last, I'd say it's, like, one of the last films that I can think of where, like, it's it's more of a theatrical experience than it is a cinematic experience. It's like you're sitting and watching this movie, but you may as well be watching a ballet with a, you know, a huge orchestra mm. scored by Wagner or Tchaikovsky or something because the music really carries you through the film. It's very loud. It's very overbearing. There's too many notes. 
and I love it. It's like that is me when it comes to music <laughs> and particularly film music. And it's just incredible. And it just, you know, that was like the first CD I ever bought. Oh, wow. um, and I was passingly familiar with John Williams, like the composer, his his scores like before mm. that because I, I loved like Jurassic Park and Star yeah. Wars and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that was like also coincided with the time that I'd started learning to play the piano. Mm-hmm. So my relationship with music had really sort of shifted in a profound way at that time. And basically that was when I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life was I was just so inspired by this like piece of work and this album that I listened to like literally like four, three or four times a day, every day for like a year until the next film came out. And then I did it for that Mm -hmm. one. And then like, and then years and years later, it also expanded out to all, all number of other sort of scores and albums. But that was like very, very formative for me. I'm still going to buy you the Mamma Mia songbook for your birthday. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm going to buy it for my birthday and you're well, going to come and play that's it That's technically, me. that's a jukebox musical. So that means that it's uh, <laughs> existing songs that were then retroactively fitted into a storyline. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Start practicing. Um, I really love this like luscious, nostalgic um, excitement that I just I can like, feel from you when you talk about these musicals um, and just on the Harry Potter, how it's just it like just it got you right in your gut and your heart really, really young. Tell me about how that relates to food. Are there any foods from your childhood that really evoke memories and that give you like ratatouille moments that take you straight back? Absolutely. At- I feel like particularly food like – Eating situations. Sorry, that's a very clinical way of calling it meals. Eating encounters. Um, I think like like a banquet, you know, the idea of like a banquet. And, you know, when I say banquet, I just mean like there's a spread of food, there's an array of food and you kind of help yourself mm. kind of thing. And like obviously growing up in a large family, like that was sort of done often with us more out of necessity than anything. It's just easier to kind of like assemble a bunch of like fruit and veg and meats and things like that. And then you kind of just like pile your plate up. But I always think of this variety of sort of stuff that's going around and just that communal aspect, I think, that that goes hand in hand with that sort of food situation, (laughs) (laughs) eating situation. Were you involved in in the cooking and preparation of food or was it very much like – get out of the kitchen while, like, mum does it. Very much get out of the kitchen while mum does it, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, I can absolutely, you know, sympathise with the fact that she had to make enough so food much. for all of those kids. But then she also made a separate mm. meal for her and dad because mm. he wow. would come home from work at, like, you know, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night because uh, he was, you know, running a, a sawmill. He was, like, up and out early before we were out of bed and yeah. got home late and, it, you know, she had to, like, prepare all this food for everyone, mm. two meals basically. Yeah. So it was very much like a, yeah, just keep clear of the of the kitchen when that's going on, and then um, and then don't complain yeah. <laughs> when you're served up what you've been given. Did um, you have any food knowledge passed down to you from anyone in the family? Not or really. Well, actually, or no, well, I will say that um, you know, particularly around birthday times, like there was always like a, a cake usually that happened, and that was something that I sort of tapped into when I was younger, which is like, oh, I wanted to be a bit more part of that process, the baking. So mm. when mum would make a cake, I would sort of like watch her and like mm. be at the, you know, at the counter kind of watching her and like seeing her beat the eggs and like mm-hmm. use the mixer. And part of that is, you know, because then you get to have the um, 
get to, you know, dip your finger in the cake batter and you get to like, lick the bowl and get the, the Very, beaters, like, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. again, it was like you had to know if, when mum was making a cake, if you were in the right place at the right time, you got the beater. <laughs> yes. And it's like if you were like scheduled for a bath that afternoon, you were like not going to get the beater. Someone else was. So I think I was quite sly in the way that I was like, maybe I was hanging around here and like watch mum make the cake. And I do remember, and I, I sort of took on the cake duties like a few times as well. And like, yeah, I really enjoyed mm. the baking. And I think, and it's still something that I, I like to do now is following a recipe where things are quite precise mm-hmm. and quite measured out. And I find that element of cooking to be very comforting and to be um, enjoyable. Mm. All right, nibbles. So nibbles. these are really quick one sentence answers first thing that comes to mind. Great. Very stream of consciousness stuff. So who's your favorite cook? My favorite cook is Nick Reed. <laughs> Episode two. So mm-hmm. gorgeous. <laughs> who's your favorite artist or composer? Well, it's John Williams, which I talked about earlier and just yeah, no question. Absolutely no question. Maybe a close second is like Beethoven. Um, but very much like inspired by people who are just absolute masters of their craft and mm. can just command the notes of the musical scale in just the most incredible ways Mm. and it's just a source of you know constant inspiration for my life and like the older I get the more inspired I am by them Mm. well this might not be a source of inspiration for your music but do you have a favorite kitchen sound oh yeah that's a really good one I like that a lot I reckon it's the sizzle it's the sizzle of fat particularly though like that um that deep that yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. like and it's like oily and it's like all the little bubbles kind of going off yeah, and yeah, yeah. often it's you know like sautéing or something like that. Mm. It's it's and it's like halfway between that and like a crackle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just find them very satisfying. Well, how, what what instrument group in an orchestra would Oh, percussion. Like- Absolutely percussion. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that would be like, you know, like cymbals and like ratchets and things mm-hmm. like that up the back just making noise. Just absolutely Chaos. Yes. (laughs) What about your favourite kitchen smell? Smell. This is, I reckon, similarly, it's like, it's that sizzle. It's that, I reckon it's like it's bacon cooking in its own like fat or with like a little bit of extra oil or something like that. So that really Mm. like just, and I don't eat a lot of meat these days because my partner's vegetarian and, you know, we tend to eat more vegetarian. But that is one smell that really just does it for me is the smell of bacon. Mm. What's the latest thing you've learned to cook? Oh, I think the latest thing that I've learned to cook is, oh, it's like a one pot risotto. Well, all risottos are Ooh. one pot. But no, it's like a really easy <laughs> no stir risotto. That's what it is. Yeah. So it's like a risotto. You just chuck all the ingredients in a big crock pot yeah. and chuck it in the oven. And you don't have to like sit and stir it for like... Ages, because if you've got a heavy, like a, a nice. like a, a crock pot with a heavy lid, yeah, the pressure inside it like cooks it evenly, and you don't have to stir it, and it doesn't stick, Ooh. and it doesn't burn, and it's like amazing risotto every single time. It's a game changer. Oh my god, where'd you find this recipe? Just like online, it was like a recipe tin eats, I think. Like any any recipe for risotto that you find, you can just like put everything all in at once, mm. chuck it in the oven, and it's aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Um, this is a real hard-hitting question. Are you mm-hmm. ready? What's your Vegemite to butter ratio? Oh, okay. I feel like this depends on the vessel. So if we're talking <laughs> toast or fresh bread. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking fresh bread, I feel like, I mean, it's always more butter than Vegemite, but I think 
particularly, I, I'd probably have a little more Vegemite on a fresh sort of bread situation. Mm. He, still heaps of butter. Like I want to be able to like bite into it and then like look sideways mm-hmm. and there's like, you know, half <laughs> your, a centimetre. Your teeth are Yeah, absolutely. Printed. There's a teeth yeah. mark. Absolutely. <laughs> I remember like being a kid and just eating my Vegemite sandwiches and like seeing that, yeah. that much butter in it. When it's toast, it's like I, I tend to use less Vegemite. It goes a, a lot further with mm-hmm. toast. There's mm. something just, I don't know. If I could eat toast for the rest of my life, I would like, especially Vegemite on toast with just God, heaps good. of melting butter mm-hmm. and just like a really, really just nice sliver of, of Vegemite over the top is just mm. amazing. Yeah. So is this more like an 80-20 kind of vibe? Absolutely, I would say. But it's more of a 60-40 if it's, if it's fresh. If it's a fresh mm. bread. Yeah. Hey, Zay. Mm-hmm. How do you make a sofrito? Oh. I should know this one. Yeah. But hang on, I'm just gonna get that I'm just gonna get that tote bag. What's it say on there? So we've got onion, garlic, celery, carrot, <laughs> extra virgin olive oil. Yeah, that, that looks about right. Yeah, that looks right. Oh, I can't wait to make a mess with all these ingredients. You can't make a mess, what are you gonna clean up with? Well, I have this tea towel as Ooh. well. I want one. I want five. Where do I get them from? What do I do? The only way you can get one for now is if you sign up to our mailing list because we're going to open our shop (gasps) to subscribers only. Okay. And you can do that by going to our website and clicking on the newsletter link or through our Instagram or in the show notes of this very episode. Amazing. So lots of options. Sign up to the mailing list because we'll be opening our shop on Friday the 15th of December where you can buy our Sofrito tote bags and tea towels. So the starving artist obviously is a very ubiquitous cultural stereotype that we're all aware of. It's in films, it's in books, it's been a way that we are perceived to live. How have you navigated this throughout your life as an artist? Well, I mean, firstly, I'll say that like there have been times where I literally, you know, had to choose between paying bills and rent um, Mm. and supporting my nicotine Mm. habit and like (laughs) buying a, you know, a pouch of tobacco or buying groceries to Mm. cook at Mm. home for an underwhelming meal that I wasn't really enjoying. So Mm -hmm. I think particularly when my relationship with food was sort of, I guess, like at its most functional, I wasn't prioritizing it really. And therefore I was kind of starving. Like Mm. I was kind of like just, yeah, as I say, not prioritizing it. Mm. But I found that like later on in life, I I sort of started to see food in a much different way as something that not only was, you know, nourishing in sort of that physical sense, but in a social and a, in a spiritual sense, but also just like we deserve to, to give our body good things, you know, invest money into the food that we're eating Mm -hmm. instead of just trying to like budget all the time or trying to to spend the least amount. And that really changed my life. Like, you know, I always make sure that we have snacks, that there's like plenty to eat and that Mm -hmm. we have food to share with other people. Mm. But there is, I think it's a complicated thing because there's a privilege to being an artist in choosing to have an artist's lifestyle. Mm. I think that, um, you know, if you are able to make that decision and to pursue that, then you are able to do something that billions of other people on this planet don't have the luxury of doing. We live in a very 
like particularly us here in in Melbourne, we lived in a we live in a very privileged society, wherein we are actually able to you know forego I guess the beaten paths before us of getting a job in a particular area or, or whatever and pursue something different if we so choose to, and it can be challenging at times in terms of how society kind of treats us or how we see society treating us every now and then. And quite often it does come down to like why are we wasting our money on this or that or, you know, or people making passing comments about others being a starving artist, et cetera. But I think, I think as artists, we should always see what we do as being like a lifetime journey and not necessarily something that we have to sacrifice everything to do in that moment. Mm. If it does maybe feel like that you are starving and that you have no money or that you are kind of like you really just like struggling maybe do something else for a little while get back on your feet and then you can come back like like the art's always going to be there you know unless you're you know doing something very time sensitive in terms of say for instance like actors I think maybe struggle a little more because they rely on their youthful looks Mm. that's not something that's necessarily going to stick around for a long time they've got to kind of get in there and get it done and like you know hurry up before the aging process starts and you know the awful industry spits them out because they're too old. I would encourage artists to think about their craft in sort of that lifelong pursuit and Mm. you don't always have to be doing that in order to sort of see yourself as an artist. Like Mm. I've gone through periods Mm. where I haven't written any music for years at a time and I have actually identified as, you know, a teacher because I was teaching piano for a long time as well. I think it can really sort of be fluid and, and change around a yeah. lot. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Absolutely. And so this idea of putting so much pressure on yourself to succeed and putting all of your money and all Absolutely. of your all of your energy and your resources for something that you think is a sprint yep. can kind of destroy it all for you. And it I know can. a lot of people yeah. who are then like, I don't want to do this thing anymore because it destroyed yes. me. Um, and I know everyone's situation is different and the way that they make is really different. But I guess the people who are taking it seriously and are existing as an artist, they know that their the muse or whatever they want to call it or their practice deserves this long-term commitment. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you need to be making hay while the sun shines. Totally. You can also go through these seasons and it can evolve. And it needs to, I think, as well. Also, in my experience, a lot of artists actually, they're the ones that see themselves as having to kind of uphold the image of the starving artist. And it's almost like if I'm not starving or suffering, then maybe I'm not doing the right Mm -hmm. thing and maybe I'm not actually like a real artist. And I Mm. think that there's a romanticism that occurs there Mm. um, where people feel like they kind of, yeah, they're they're sort of like um, depriving themselves of just the basic joys of life in order to pursue this artistic goal mm. or these goals that they might have. You just said suffering. Yes. And that is something I just want to blow right open because what sits next to this idea of the starving artist is the tortured artist. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as you said suffering, I was like, oh, yes. Is your art only good because it was made from pain? Or, you know, um, I remember when Chris Martin got married and everyone was like, oh, my God, he's happy. Coldplay are never going to write another good song. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, great example. What happens yeah. now? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, then he, and then I think Gwyneth Paltrow's dad died and then he wrote Fix You and everyone was like, oh, no, it's all good. Yeah. But, <laughs> like, is pain necessary to make good art? Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm qualified to, like, give a definitive answer to that, but I think I can definitely ruminate on it and I have strong opinions about it. And I think largely what I think is that, Good art, I think, connects with people Mm. and quite often that coincides with 
some kind of perspective on an experience, an experience that, you know, that we share as humans. And so often that is something that's painful. It can yeah. be like a breakup or it can be like mourning or something like that, using art to, to connect with other humans. And I feel like that in that sense, there are artists that maybe operate more or exist more in that in that space, like you mentioned, you know, Chris Martin and Coldplay. And it's like, yeah, if you're known as like the breakup song, Mm. I think of like Taylor Swift, for instance, it's like, it's kind of a meme now of like, you know, like she just writes about her failed relationships. And like, at what point is that legitimately true? And at what point Mm. is that sort of just an image? But I don't know. I think, I don't think you necessarily need to suffer in order for your art to be good, but I certainly think that good artists are able to frame their experiences in ways that connect with audiences and that's how they become established or Mm well-known. And I think sidestepping the whole argument about, you know, good art versus commercial art and success, it's more about sort of that idea of connecting. So if you're presenting yourself as someone who has a lot to say or a lot to kind of offer in a space about intense emotions like breaking up or you know mourning or death or things like that and you actually haven't had that experience yeah. then that's not going to ring true that's not going to feel authentic therefore that that art has sort of failed in its objective whereas I feel like someone who is in touch with those things who mm. has a perspective on those things and can articulate that through their art will be much more successful it's authenticity in the end so like yes in a way pain is necessary to to make art that is authentically about pain and will connect with audiences Mm, who are experiencing that thing. My take on it, though, is kind of coming back to a point that you had earlier on where a lot of artists kind of self-perpetuate this struggling, starving Mm. stereotype Mm -hmm. and think that that is the place from which all art that is meaningful comes from. Yes. They then, they they, for... They're seeing the wrong direction. It's like they're seeing the end product and assuming that it comes from this place. I must cause this suffering in order to... Yeah. 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 And so they might put themselves in really uncomfortable positions where they are not in a good place. Uh, They might even be in, in danger. Yep. And then eventually burn out and also think that art isn't for them. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have to be a starving artist to be a good artist. No. You can work and you don't have to do it full time. That that creative thing is still there. It's like you said, like music will always be there even if you walked away from it for a little while. And creativity is always there too. Um, I remember... Yo, I think I think Lyndon said it in his podcast, but like every, I and I totally agree with it. Everyone is creative, and creativity is is not tied to artistry or to craft. It is just it's a it's a, a way of thinking. It's a part of your imagination, and we yeah. all have an imagination as well. It's part of everybody. I think that's yeah. what's hard is that um, we the culture here in this country very much kind of puts people into corridors at school, and Absolutely. it's like you are a maths and science person or you're a creative yeah. artsy yeah. person, and that's kind of it. And, and it's vaguely pseudoscientific as well, I think, from, you know, when yeah. they're talking about the hemispheres of the brain, yeah. which yeah. is, I think, been dispunk- like I think debunked it's, yeah. since then. But, yeah. it's like, but that stuff, I think, stays with us. Yeah, well, well yeah. It, it It's does. like you either are or you're not. Yeah, exactly. It's horrible. It's such a narrow view. Yeah. And I think that's damaging to Othering. artists because, again, mm. I think it perpetuates a lot of these attitudes that, that are harmful to artists. And mm-hmm. ironically, they are suffering, <laughs> but it's sort of like a suffering not 
well, kind of of their own making, but sort of just as of society's making, really. Yeah. This is a big question and it's a very abstract one. So we're not looking for concrete answers here, <laughs> but what do you think the role of the artist is? Oh, that's interesting. What's the reason why do we have artists? Like what evolutionary reason, what cultural kind of significant reason there is to have artists? And I think it's often it's just like ref- reflecting what it means to be human, reflecting mm-hmm. our connections, the things that we love about each other, the things that we love about the world, the things we observe that we see, the ways in which I think that we sense the world around us. Um, the role of the artist is to kind of go, okay, I see this mm-hmm. concept, this emotion, this feeling, and I want to communicate it to people with just one particular perspective that I have about it. And that's what I want to kind of like share with the world. Those are the really special kind of moments. And the moments where I feel like that the artists themselves and the audience all think, this is why we do this. You know, this is why this exists is be- mm. because we feel this way and it makes us feel this way. Oh, that makes me proud to be an artist. Yeah. How do you think that artists could be better resourced so that they could participate in something like that? Yeah, I think heavy investment into well-being and the idea yeah. of what well-being is in society as being beyond just sort of like is your body in physical working order? Yeah. Is your brain in a passable working order? Mm. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much about, you know, psychology and the wellness of the mind that I feel like we've talked about suffering and starving as artists, mm. but that just is prohibitive to artists to operate, you know. And I think mental health is is probably primary one. Yeah. But I often do think that like that mental health, you know, would be so much more improved if they could afford to put food on the table for themselves or if they didn't have to imagine that it was either all or nothing with their with their artistry, whether they could mm. choose to do something else. So I think like a lot of other guests mm. have said, some form of universal basic income, some form of just egalitarian kind of living, basic living condition yeah. where people are, they're able to, they have a platform to, express themselves and to explore things because their basic needs are met. Yeah. It's just most basic needs are met, mm. like a roof over their head, food in their belly and the opportunity to connect with other people. And on, on mental health and just as a disclaimer, you absolutely don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but you have recently had an ADHD diagnosis. Yes. Is there anything you want to share about that in relation to to how you – create or how you see yourself as as an artist or yeah absolutely I mean I feel like it's a that's been an interesting journey in and of itself is that diagnosis and I guess what it means for me you know I sort of hit my mid-20s and wasn't so much looking around at other people what they were doing I was starting to look in was it myself and often in a negative way going what don't I have that other people have that could be really lonely and a really isolating really horrible feeling where you feel like you're different or that you're not as successful or, and we all go through this. I don't think it's a unique thing, but we go through it in our own unique way. But I feel like mine was very much tied to, I think a feeling that I had, which was just that I, I wasn't operating in a socially acceptable way. I was daydreaming. I was a daydreamer. I, my time management skills were shocking. Like my coping mechanisms in order to just function on a day-to-day basis were like bordering on, you know, the addictive, like I got hooked on, you know, nicotine and coffee and all of those things just so I could focus and concentrate. 
yeah. And then when I got this diagnosis, it sort of felt like a huge relief. It was a huge weight off my shoulders because I felt like there was, you know, an explanation for why I was the way I was. Mm. I wasn't just a lazy person. And I'm to anyone listening now, like never ever call someone lazy mm. and never let someone call you lazy. There is actually no such thing as laziness. Like what you might think is laziness is actually someone else operating in a completely different, you know, mental and physical state. And and so I feel like that was so freeing in a lot of ways for me because it allowed me to kind of exist as myself with this new imperfection, knowing that there was nothing I could do about it. Like apart from getting medicated, which I am now medicated, you can't, like there's there's no amount of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There's no amount of setting your fucking alarm in the morning to get up early and then falling asleep and pressing snooze for another two hours. There's no amount of just like uh, self-help self help that you can do to actually fix this problem. Mm. And that was just the most amazing thing to feel was that it wasn't my fault, you know. Mm. And I feel like if you think that you've got it, you probably have it because people who don't <laughs> have it, don't think they have it because there's just not like nothing of what I've just said would resonate with you if you didn't have it mm. um, or if you at least didn't exist on the spectrum of having it. And again, I, that's not to say that anyone that thinks they might have it definitely does or needs to be medicated or anything like that. It's just more of a case of if you feel like it's negatively impacting your life in a really drastic way, then it might be worth investigating. And how does that all come together with food? Well, that's interesting because one of the problems that I would have when I would cook in the past would be having a recipe in front of me and darting around the page mm-hmm. and like cooking and then halfway through mm-hmm. going, oh no, I missed a whole fucking ingredient or I missed a whole step. And so there's something, especially about like baking, which is such an exact science when it comes to cooking. Well, actually, I think this is why I, I liked it because there was a method to it and there was like, a, okay, one step after another, but I didn't do it very often because it was exhausting. Yeah. It took up a lot of brain space and a lot of my energy was just trying to concentrate on this piece of paper with the instructions on it. That's why I'm, I think I'm envious of like people like Nick who can just improvise in the kitchen because they're not beholden to this recipe <laughs> in front of them. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny. It's again, it's complicated. It's, it's weird. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Time for nibbles. What's your favourite utensil or gadget in the kitchen? Oh, I'm going to go with the garlic crusher. There's just something really satisfying about like squeezing it and then just like seeing that the goo just kind of come out and the little Ah. squares. It's great. It's like when you used to eat a salada and have heaps of like butter and Vegemite on it and then you'd squeeze it (laughs) down and you get the little noodles that come out. Little (laughs) wormies. Yeah, little wormies. Uh, do you have a kitchen disaster story or a funny story you could share with us? Ah, uh, kitchen disaster, I think, was one of the times when I was baking a cake for someone's birthday when I was like a teenager. And it was the first ever time that I realized that eggs could be rotten. <gasps> and it was awful because I was like, put all like put all the eggs in, and rather than decant the eggs somewhere separate, I just like was cracking them straight in the bowl with mm. all the other ingredients and then I cracked mm. one and it was like kind of weird looking and a bit yuck smelling and I was like, oh, that's a bit, that's not nice. And so I went and got mum and I was like, oh, what's going on Go here? get mum. Like, she's like, oh, yeah, that's rotten. By this stage it was it had kind of like seeped through everything and, you know, it was like a few cups of flour and cocoa and sugar and all, mm-hmm. all this other stuff and basically I had to throw it all out and then start again. And it was um, no good. So that was devastating. Yeah. <laughs> 
Always what? check your eggs, though. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's check my your eggs. Yeah. If you could recreate an artwork out of food, what would it be and what would you use? Mm, I really like this. The artwork that came to mind is, is it Starry Night? Is that what it's called? By yes. Van Gogh. Yeah. And I would use mashed potato, like really textural <laughs> mashed potato. Because you can get those lines. Yeah, because otherwise you don't get like that really textural line. But it's like you'd have to use a bit of food dye, which That's is a fine. bit dodge. A little no, bit no, dodge. No. But, you You're know, allowed. I would eat that. I would yeah, eat that. 100%. I'd eat that. Pete, you've got your recipe in front of you. What is it? I have here aloo gobi pie. So aloo gobi is cauliflower and potato curry in particular. Yum. And potato is like my all-time favorite vegetable. Cauliflower is actually quite high up. I love cauliflower. Mm. But this particular recipe, originally it was just like the recipe for the curry itself. Really simple curry, um, vegetarian. And you basically like you make the whole curry as you would normally make it, you know, just to eat with some rice or naan or just by itself. But then you just like chuck it in <laughs> in some pastry and chuck it in the oven. Mm. And you serve, like I like to serve it with like a um, kasundi or like a tomato relish and also with the buttery and flaky pastry. It's just like, it's amazing. Mm. It's a great taste. Are there specific rules to making this that you would want to sort of get out of the way before someone attempts it? Like, I definitely you- think, yeah, there's a lot of trial, er- trial and error with this yeah. one because it's like, despite what I sort of have been saying, I'm not really a baker. So like <laughs> I don't really have that many skills when it comes to baking. <laughs> so a lot of times I, you know, I'd made this and like it fell apart or is undercooked or things Bit of a like soggy, that. soggy bottom. Yeah, or soggy. The feeling so, I could imagine would be a tough one to get right. Total, so it doesn't just spill out. Yeah. So one thing that I suggest doing is um, preparing the base, like the pastry beforehand and like pre-baking it rather than, which is what I did the first few times, Rather than getting the frozen pastry and then chucking a hot filling into it where it all just melts and falls apart, (laughs) it's like pre-bake it first and like prick holes in it. So like, Mm -hmm. because it's puff pastry and it's going to puff up just to give it a bit of, you know, a bit of leeway and let the filling cool a little bit as well before you put it in Mm. and then seal it and then chuck it in the oven. Even in terms of like the, the filling itself, try not to have too much liquid in it. Okay, so what flavours are we looking for? Like what are we noticing when we're tucking into it? So I noticed firstly just kind of like the nuttiness of the cauliflower, the real fluffy and delicious like roast potato kind of flavour, which is like the best way to eat potato, I think. The the depth of the cumin and the, um, oh, yeah, the real richness of like the tomato as well in there, the acidic kind of flavour in there too. Ginger, I love like heaps of ginger and garlic in in this Uh. recipe. And if, you know, if you're unable to eat garlic, you can use asafoetida instead, which is um, like a spice mix that you can get from most like Indian grocers or Asian stores, I'm pretty sure. But you can use it as a substitute for onion and garlic. You can't have it. And it just sort of gives you that kind of pungent flavor that you sort of need from garlic and onion. Is this the main event or are you serving anything with it? I'd say this is a main event. You would... Maybe if you wanted to, like, have a more colourful plate, you could have a little salad to go with it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the kind of thing that we're, like, you know, even though it's an Indian curry, you could serve it in a really, like, you know, with a side salad if you wanted to, you know, mm. like you would with a with another pie or, yeah. you know, or with some mashed potatoes if you wanted to. Like, uh-huh. I'd like more potatoes with this. Yeah, I would 100%. Right, I could eat potato upon potato. Yeah. Like, if I could eat one Thank thing you. for the rest of my life, it's the Irishman coming out of me, but <laughs> it's just potato, 100%. Um, but, yeah, I'd say this is the main event. Nice. And what are we drinking with it? 
I reckon a nice glass of red. Ooh, I reckon because I kind? see this as like a wintry kind okay. of meal, like mm. really comfort food kind of thing. And I'm imagining mm. just like a really nice like Pinot Noir or even like a, you know, if something heavier, if you like, like a yeah. Tempranillo or a um, Shiraz or something. Yeah, I, I definitely mm. think like a red. Mm. Well, I would be very happy having this on a plate in front of me with a glass of red wine next to it. Absolutely. Oof. Well, actually noted because I have not made it for you guys before and I would love to do that. I would love you to do that too. You're living in Melbourne at the moment. Where are you going to eat? Where? What makes you happy? Where are you leaving the house for? So at the moment, so we live in Kensington at the moment, Nick and I, and uh, a lot of people know Kensington, particularly Racecourse Road near where we live, as being the home of Luxor King. Mm. I'm here to tell you that the best Luxor <gasps> on Racecourse Road is not Luxor King. It's <gasps> around the corner at Chef Legenda, I think. Chef Legenda. Amazing. They just do like really amazingly simple, delicious Malaysian-inspired mm. food, particularly their laksa. Mm. And I remember being like deathly hungover once and I like the prospect of even a laksa was going to make me sick. So I was just like, <laughs> I just need like a simple, like brothy, clear soup with some like chicken and noodles in it. And they had that on the menu and it was just like, this food fixed me. Oh. And it's like, it is full on comfort food. Mm. Um, and I get a takeaway sometimes. Mm. I will like, will sit in and it is amazing. All right. We'll Perfect. put that in the show notes. Links to that in yep. the show notes. Definitely. I always like to find like a segue, but I, I've forgotten what we were just talking about. Soup. Soup. I don't know. I can't think of one. Well, you're quite super. What else is you <laughs> <laughs> um, At the moment, I'm working on just like a, compiling a collection of original compositions sort of based around the piano and some other instruments, like sort of like a small chamber situation. So like maybe a clarinet, violin combination here mm. or there, more sort of geared towards like my sensibilities as a composer and sort of my melodic and harmonic influences and the things I enjoy writing. I'm really excited to see what that looks like. And we can find you, Pete Corrigan, Peter Corrigan. Music. Yeah, Peter Corrigan Music at, um, that's on Instagram. Instagram. That's my uh, Instagram handle. That's probably the best place to to find me if you wanted to have a listen to what I've been doing. Fantastic. Mm. I certainly do. I think after this conversation, everyone will because you've shared so many wonderful stories and your recipe is, I think, an absolute gorgeous comforting dish with depth it's very you if i had to describe you <laughs> that's how i would do it Pete. amazing <laughs> Pete as you. pie <laughs> <laughs> well i just feel like it's a it's a good philosophy of life it's like if if it can go on a pie put it in a pie mm-hmm. you know, just <laughs> wrap it in a crust that's exactly right <laughs> chuck it in a crust um, um i have one more question going rogue again uh favorite disney musical song oh that's a good one i'm going to go with Probably the circle of life. Circle of life. It is a banger. Oh, banger. Well, if anybody wants to find you, they can find you on your Instagram, but also maybe people want to make your pie and go and listen to the Lion King soundtrack. Absolutely. Get some chills. Yep. Get some pie into them and just, you know, follow your philosophy. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a good philosophy. It's so good. I say everyone should go and do that right now. Thanks for listening. If you want to make Pete's recipe, you can find all the details on our website. And then once you've made it, you can snap a photo and pop it up on your socials and hashtag it with Pete's Alugobi Pie. 
We also have our shop opening very, very soon. Oh so please sign up to our mailing list to be given first access to lots of goodies on there. So you won't have to line up and no one's going to have to watch you like a hawk while you scoop out all your little cocoa pops. You just have to make sure that you're on the mailing list and then you get first dibs. This year, we've built up a whole massive collection of recipes from lots of different guests. There's lots of delicious dishes there. So take this chance over the holidays, go and visit our recipes page on our website and cook something. And you can also just go and look at the artwork. It's absolutely gorgeous. And then whilst you're there, you can check out what all our artists are up to. Thank you so much for your support this year and we'll see you soon. We'll be back as soon as we can. Bye. Bye.